Today, I want to talk to you about how to be happy. As a matter of fact, we're going to see Jesus' prescription for happiness. The teachings of Jesus telling us what happiness really is. Now, the world's philosophy about happiness, I don't know exactly what that is. It's, it's a moving target for, uh, for our culture. But I know there are a few things like this. Uh, some would say the person with the most toys wins. But uh, we, we outgrow toys eventually, we found out, and we know that that's not true. There's another philosophy uh, that the world would espouse that would be something like this, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and it's like immediate pleasure, but here's the problem with that philosophy, short-term pleasure, long-term pain. And then there's other religions that look for a transcendental, transcendental rather, state of nothingness that you can find in bliss if you just move everything out of your head, so problem with that is empty head means empty heart in that, uh, in that case, and there's a void there. Then there's those that feel like the goal should be to just work to the point that we don't have to work anymore. Uh, no work, all leisure, like that would, be, that would be the goal. But even that, I mean, if you can get there, it's boredom and lack of fulfillment. If you're just sitting around and watching TV, playing video games, whatever it may, may be, there, there's got to be more in your body, your life, your spirit knows that. Then there's power and fame. A lot of people work for that. That, If I could just get power and fame to control things and be seen as somebody. But we see there that it's fleeting. It brings gnawing pain. And people know when they get there, it's not enough. There has to be more. None of those philosophies work. Matthew 5.1 says this. One day as the crowds were gathering, Jesus went up to the mountainside with his disciples and he sat down to teach them. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do today. I'm going to sit down for this whole sermon. And here's why. When that culture, when, when the uh, rabbinical teacher or the rabbi, through the Hebrew culture, would sit, it meant that he was about to give the essence of his teaching. It meant that he was about to give a really important um, uh, central focus to, to the core of the, of the truth as he knew it. Now, Jesus is sitting down, and by the way, When Jesus sat down in this verse right here in the Hebrew culture, uh, it's the same place where colleges get their term chair for professor. It actually comes out of this culture. The chair is the the master teacher who runs the department and uh, knows all, uh, you know, as far as a professor can know. Well, Jesus is the chair of the church. And Jesus was about to sit down and tell you what happiness really is about. Not what the world says, but how to truly find happiness in your life. And so I'm going to sit down, not to show my authority in any way, but to show the authority of these words today. This is coming from the chair himself, the the captain of our faith, the savior of our souls, Jesus Christ. And it says he opened his mouth and taught them. And here's the central core that he would be speaking. He was saying, blessed are those, or in the version I'm using, God blesses those. That word bless, when he says blesses, We know them as the Beatitude, blessed are those, right? We know them as Beatitudes. And by the way, as we look at this, these are attitudes that that we should have, or we should be these attitudes. That's a good way to to think of it as as, uh, how to be happy. But but when that culture heard those words, that um, blessed are those, in their language, they knew that it meant this. This is what it meant, divine joy and perfect happiness. So imagine what the people of that day were thinking when Jesus sits down and says, let me tell you about divine joy and how to get perfect happiness. And then he starts to speak these words. And here's what it says in the Psalms. Happy indeed are those whose God is the Lord. We're gonna talk about 
this prescription, Jesus' words, how to be happy today. Let's pray. Father, come by the power of your Holy Spirit. Show yourself mighty. Lord, our culture struggles so much with happiness and you're, you're about to tell us your words about how it really needs to take place and what really brings it about. So help us to receive it, I pray. Work by the power of your Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm gonna give you all three points uh, right out of the bat, which is kind of unusual for me. But I've, I, I've taken these 10 verses that we're gonna talk about this morning, the Beatitudes, and I've lumped them into three categories. And, and here's the prescription for happiness. We'll fill in the blanks here in just a moment. Empty, fill up, and pour out. That's my three points today. Empty, get rid of the old self. Fill up with God and pour out your life as an offering and service to him. That's the prescription to happiness. Let's look at the first one today. Empty. Get rid of the old self. Jesus speaks. Here's his words out of the mouth of the teacher. Here's how to have divine joy and perfect happiness. He says, God blesses those who realize their need for him. Some of your Bibles, the version says, poor in spirit. What's it mean to be poor in spirit, to, to realize your need of him? It says the kingdom of heaven is given to those who realize their need for him. Well, here's what it means. To be humble and modest, it's the opposite of proud or cocky. It's the realization that I, by myself, can't make it happen in life. I can do nothing that's really, truly significant in life by myself. It's a correct estimate of yourself. Our world says self-confidence is the key. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, and we'll get to that later, God-confidence is the key. Not key in your ability. Everything you have was given to you by God. But it's God-confidence, not self-confidence. Did you know the Bible never says to love yourself? It's erroneous doctrine when we make that a central point of Christianity, love yourself. He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, love others as yourself. There's an assumption in there, you already do love yourself. You're not gonna have much problem figuring out that you're looking out for number one. That's in you already. What you really need to focus on is loving him and loving others. But we tend to think, well, it's, you know, if we just have a, a good ego and, and um, you know, we don't have poor self-esteem, he says, empty yourself and realize your need of me. 1 John 1.8 lets us know that part of the correct estimate of who we are is that we're sinners, that we can't earn our own way with God. If we say, it says in 1 John 1.8, we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and refusing to accept the truth. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. Do you know I met a teacher who taught at a Christian school for 17 years who told me after 17 years of teaching that she accepted Christ one morning. That was a surprise because she was a Christian teacher. She said she sat in one of our services and realized that she had always thought her whole life long that she had never sinned. That is the only person I've ever met who said that to me. And if you're sitting here today and think you've never sinned, you just sinned by saying that because you're lying to yourself. All of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And that woman that day realized that she was a sinner and needed God's grace to cover her life. And it's the correct estimate of who we are. We're sinners. 
but the grace of God is offered to us. Well, here's another beatitude that Jesus gives us in Matthew 5, 4. And we're still talking about emptying of self. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is, has to do with the mourning of our sin. Not only recognizing that we've sinned, but realizing that our sin has hurt us. See, this is, a, this is why God hates sin. Because it hurts you and it hurts others. Doesn't it make sense he wouldn't like that? And he wants us to mourn over the fact that we've hurt others with our pain. With our sin, we've caused pain. He wants us to mourn over the effects of sin in this world. That's part of what that means as well. That perversion and sin brings about pain and damage in life. And he wants us to have a, a correct view of that. Because when we, when we mourn over our sin and the sin of this world, we realize what it is. It actually will bring comfort as Jesus can come in and touch those hearts and fill us up. Here's what Psalm 51.9 says. I want you to notice King David here. He has sinned greatly. And he has a correct estimate of his sin. And I believe the Lord would want us to, to mourn over our sin in a similar fashion. Don't keep looking at my sins, he's asking God here in this passage. Remove the stain of my guilt. Stain and guilt. I mean, he didn't say, I feel guilty. He said, I am guilty. You know why? Because he was. And so are we. We are guilty of sin. And yet the grace of God is offered to forgive it and cover it. And he says this, and this is our hearts too, it should be our hearts, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. What I'm talking about here is the same feeling that Peter had when Jesus told him to cast the net on the other side of the boat. And he said, we fished all night. And Jesus said, just do it. So when he throws the net down, they pull it up with fish and they have to fill another boat around them. There's so many fish. And he realizes, listen, Peter knows how to fish. It's his, it was his, his life's occupation. He knows there were no fish there the night before and they're not gonna be fish there now. He knows that a miracle just happened and he, realized, he realizes who Jesus is. And here's his heart when he sees who Jesus is. He says in Luke 5, 8, depart from me for I am a sinful man. He says, surely, Lord, if you knew who I was and where I'd been, you wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. But that's not truly the heart of Jesus. Peter had the correct estimate because you know when you can see flaws the most? I, I mean, I noticed we went to a, a nice hotel in Seattle recently and they had this mirror that you'd turn a light on and you could get it brighter and brighter. And I noticed that the brighter the light, the more the flaws uh, could be seen in the face. And... Um, Really, Jesus is the light of the world. And when that light shines bright, your thought will initially be, woe is me. God is completely holy and I am not. That is a correct estimate. That is part of the quotient for happiness in your life to realize you are flawed, but he is great. To let his light shine and acknowledge I have need of you is one of the steps to truly finding happiness. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. We're not talking about a sorrow that's excessive that would lead you to depression. We're talking about the understanding that he is so holy and we are so sinful. And that godly sorrow leads us to want to do the right thing and that's a, that's a soul that God could pour into when we get that correct estimate of ourselves. Part of this Emptying of self has to do as well with the word meek. Meekness is not the same as weakness, but we see in verse five, meekness is really strength. 
Here it's mentioned as gentle and lowly in the New Living Translation. God blesses those, still talking about emptying self now, empty of self, those who are gentle and lowly, for the whole earth will belong to them. What's that mean? I like what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones rather says, good definition for meekness. He said, the man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. That's not a person who feels like they deserve something, this gentle and lowly. This makes him gentle, he says, humble, sensitive, patient in all his dealings with others. When we realize we're not the big deal, that God is the big deal, that any gifts we have come directly from him or we wouldn't even have those. That's the common grace of God in our lives. All your intelligence, all your business uh, ability, all your athletic ability, musical ability, whatever you have, you only have by the grace of God because he gave it to you. And to get this gentle, lowly heart is to realize that all I have, anything I can ever have of value has come from God, will come from God. And so we see man in a light that comes from a humble heart, a humble heart that puts God ahead of self. So it's the gentle, it's the humble, it's the modest person who realizes their need of God that has the chance for happiness. It's only part of the quotient, but you have to empty of self first if you're gonna be happy. It can't be all about you. Now, I went out to, um, to grab a Happy Meal last night at 11.30. I did that because my wife reminded me they don't sell Happy Meals uh, in the morning. So I went out at 11.30, and uh, this is what McDonald's says makes you happy. <laughs> and you remember these, right? I, I mean, I, the, one of the best parts is the toy. The, the, this is a Tonka toy, the boy's toy, and I actually put the decals on it if you want to come up and check that out later. Um, but, I, but I also told the guy, hey, I, 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 want, uh, I want the girl's toy too, which is a little bit strange pulling through there at night, not having a kid in the car with you and ordering a girl toy as well, you know. It's a little embarrassed when I pulled up to the, uh, to the window there. But uh, this is, I think it's My Little Pony, and it comes with a, uh, a little comb in there. And then, and then, of course, there's this amazing meal that you get. Um, happy meal, there's five or six fries that you... Uh, that you get, and, and then there's the uh, burger. I ordered the cheeseburger. See, so here's, hi, I'm happy. And did that in first, uh, first serve. This is what McDonald's, then you get, of course, your 12-ounce Coke here. This will make you happy. Now, there was a time in my life where this made me happy. I mean, I couldn't wait to get the toy, and it was just so cool. And, and then... Suddenly, I started thinking, even as I was growing, you know, that's, that food really isn't that great. And by the way, McDonald's has healthy food on their menu these days. There's good stuff there. I don't want to knock McDonald's. I'm just trying to prove a point. Work with me here. If you work at McDonald's, forgive me. But eventually, I realized that's not even very good food, you know, that comes from there. And then I realized that I was ordering it when I didn't even want the toy anymore. I was getting too old for the toy, and I thought... I just decided in my heart, that doesn't make me happy. I don't want that anymore. Now, I said this, I gave you this to, to share this with you. We've poured things into our lives in the past that were all about self, and we need to come to the realization they don't make us happy. So at some point in my life, I put all of this aside and said, 
I'm not going there anymore. I'm going to get better food. And then last night, Karen cooked an incredible steak with some potatoes and some uh, uh, vegetables around it. And it was, it was just a great dinner. I know what good food is, and I've replaced mostly in my life <laughs> that stuff for the good stuff. I'm asking you today, will you just make a decision that you're not going to be about self anymore? Will you say, okay, I'm not going to let that be what fills me because it's empty and it's void and it doesn't make me healthy. And then go to the good stuff. And I want to talk about the good stuff. So Jesus says, empty of self, and he gives those beatitudes. And now he says, fill up with me. So how do we fill up with God? Here's the other beatitudes that Jesus gives us. He's still giving us, that's part of the prescription of happiness, self out right attitude estimation of your own sin and who you are and when that when that's gone then then fill up with these things verse 6 god blesses those who are hungry and thirst for justice most of your bibles or some of the versions say righteousness who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will receive it in full now righteousness or justice here means to have a heart for god's truth god says Get rid of that other stuff, a heart to promote self, and now have a heart for my truth. This is why we love the Bible so much here. Because these are the words of Jesus Christ that fill us. These are the boundaries that protect us and keep us from getting hurt. The fear of the Lord brings happiness. The fear of the Lord is if I get beyond the boundaries, I'll hurt myself and others. And so we, we learn to value this. We learn that joy comes from boundaries that keep us safe. And righteousness means to have a heart for truth to get into this word and apply it to our lives. And then we start to make right decisions, honoring God's value system, not our own. This righteousness that the Bible talks about is both immediate and acquired. And I know when I say acquired, it might make some people nervous. But let me share some scripture with you. There's a theological word that is um, used a lot when it comes to righteousness and it's, uh, it's called imputed. And there's an imputed righteousness that means uh, immediately given by the Spirit of God to you when you become a Christian. It's imputed to you. And in one sense, it's really true that we are all righteous before God the moment we accept Jesus Christ because we're forgiven of our sins. Jesus has come to live in our hearts. Now that doesn't mean that we'll never make another mistake, but the righteousness of God now resides in our very being. And here it is in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 1.30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So Jesus, his wisdom, his being is our righteousness. So that's in the Bible, and that's completely true. But then there's other scriptures like this one in 2 Peter 3.14. And so, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to live pure and a blameless life. What? The Bible says to you and I that we should make an effort to do the right thing. And we see all through the Bible that men and women were called righteous when they had righteous acts and behavior. Evidenced by the fact that anybody who bears the name of Christ or Christian and lives a hypocritic life or as a hypocrite doesn't practice what they preach or do what they say, they don't have a witness, do they? 
because the world's not gonna be moved by people who don't live the right way. So this righteousness is imputed, but there's also something of effort that God is asking us for. And that's why I like to say that if we're gonna be godly, if we're gonna overcome sin, it takes willpower. It takes our will, our effort, our will, but God's power, willpower. When we have a will to do the right thing, his power and grace shows up. He doesn't only save by grace, he transforms by grace. Grace helps us to grow in the Lord. It empowers us to do the right thing, but we have to make effort. We have to set our will to do the right thing. And then he meets us. So there's this hunger and the thirst to do what he's asking us to do. And here it is in the word, Psalm 112.1. Happy are those who fear the Lord. Yes, happy are those who delight in doing what he commands. Do we delight in doing what he commands? Then it goes on to say, we're talking about filling up now. So we're filling up with righteousness and the truth of God's word. That's what he wants to pour in to replace self. But but then he says this, because this is part of who he is too that he wants to fill us with. God blesses those who are merciful. This is what Jesus says, for they will be shown mercy. Now mercy means to have compassionate, loving hearts towards others. That's what mercy is, a compassionate, loving heart towards others. Towards those who are suffering because of sin. Here's a thought for you. Quite often, it seems to happen to us, we can get kind of calloused as we, as we serve Christ for a season. Those of us who are a little older in the Lord have more danger of, of losing this if we're not careful than those who've just come to the Lord. When you've just come to the Lord, you remember his mercy. It's pretty fresh to forgive you, his grace that's been over your life. But if you've, if you've done fairly well and you're kind of following the rules, pretty soon you start to make it about the rules. It never is about the rules. It's about the relationship with Jesus. And we follow because he transforms our hearts and we love him so much. But if we're not careful, the older we get in the Lord, we can look at someone on TV from Hollywood who's dressed the wrong way, singing, dancing the wrong way, saying the wrong things, totally messed up and we can despise them if we're not careful. That is not the emotion that the heart of God wants to evoke in people that are trapped by sin. Because really the truth is we know in Hollywood those people in more pain than anyone I can think of in this life. They're running from relationship to relationship. They can't make it work. They're in and out of alcohol rehab. They are broken and they need Jesus. That is the right heart. I think if we had the right heart, and now, now I think I can understand the, tr- the, 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 the response of hating sin because Jesus hates sin. You know why he hates it? Because it hurts you and me and it hurts others. And he doesn't want to see us hurt. He doesn't want us doing things that will damage our lives, so he comes to help us. So it's okay to hate sin, but it's never okay to hate people. Ever, ever, ever. What if we saw Britney Spears on television and instead of that proud look, we prayed a prayer for her? What if we looked at these young ladies and young men who can't make it work and said, Jesus, come into their hearts. Jesus, send people to help them. Now we're having a heart of mercy, which is the heart of God. God wants us to have mercy 
on people who are suffering the consequences of sin and the sorrow of sin. And there's this balance. See, see, we see it right here in these Beatitudes. The balance of righteousness and mercy. The balance of grace and truth. That's what the Bible said Jesus was full of. What's Jesus full of? John 1:14, full of grace and truth. I call it the two wings of an airplane. You can't fly without one of them. You gotta have both of them. And one, we'll see it here in Jeremiah, it's a verse I'm gonna read, is righteousness. And the other is love that is unfailing. And if the church of God, if the people of God, if, we are, if, we're not, if we're full of just righteousness, we're just gonna crash and burn. We'll have a heart for truth, but no love. And if we're just full of love, it'll be greasy grace that allows people to be damaged by sin and wound and hurt ourselves. But when both wings are there, Jesus is full of grace and truth. If we're full of grace and truth, now we start to see. After all, your coworker, if you just have a heart for righteousness and you don't like them, they'll start to call you goody tissues. You think you're a big deal. You're one of those Christians who never makes mistakes. And if we're not careful, we can kind of show that attitude accidentally. But even for a worker, a coworker who's wronged you, what if you had a heart of compassion and mercy towards their soul? Because see, they may see the way you're living, and they do, they're watching. But they also see whether you're loving. Are you loving? And even though they don't know Jesus, they believe if there really is a God, he's probably full of love. And guess what? They're right. And what if you lived right and you loved truth, but you cared about people? Now they've got a chance to fly as they see that witness. We're not a good witness if it's not righteousness and love. It's imbalanced. Jeremiah 9, 23, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man gloat in his wisdom or the mighty man in his might or the rich man in his riches. Let them boast in this alone, that they truly know me. Here's what comes from knowing him. And they understand that I, the Lord, who is just and righteous, whose love is unfailing. Look at that. Righteousness with love that is unfailing. That's God. And that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. Be filled up with the heart for what is right, yes. But be filled up with mercy and compassion for others. Mercy that would reach to the poor who have not food, but mercy that would reach to those who are spiritually poor and know not God. Do you know the, I, I have found this, the more I get to know Jesus, the more compassion and love I have for other people. And you know the beauty of serving God is it's, it's a lifelong journey where we can grow all the time. Our whole, life's long, whole life long, we can look better and better in our inner man. Can't do that with our outer body. I, I've already decided I'm not going to be able to look better and better from this point on. Outwardly, but inwardly, you and I can just get more beautiful all the time. Righteous and loving hearts. When, when we grow in God, we'll get compassion for people. Think of the person who's harmed you the most. Do you want God's mercy to come to them? It's interesting that we always want his mercy for our lives, right? I don't know very many people who don't want mercy for their lives when it comes to God's judgment. But too often we want judgment for other people and not mercy. 
Wouldn't the best thing be if Jesus filled their hearts? Wouldn't the best thing be if they were transformed? If you don't want mercy for people that have harmed you, you are not like Jesus Christ. When they drove the nails in his hands, the soldiers laughing and mocking, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing. And even that love was a witness to those people. It's a witness to us because we have driven those nails as well with our own sin. All of us have sinned. We've received forgiveness and God wants us to love it coming to people. James 2.13 says this, kind mercy wins over harsh judgment every time. Kind mercy wins over harsh judgment. Look at the, 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 the truth God wants. He does not want anyone to perish. 2 Peter 3.9. So he's giving more time for everyone to repent. When we want mercy over judgment, when we long for people to repent, And be redeemed, now we are like Jesus. That is a prescription for happiness because anything else will lead you to bitterness. If they've hurt you and you want them hurt back, now you've got bitterness in your heart and that defiles many around you. When we get filled with the love of God, we'll have a love and compassion for people, even the ones who've hurt us. Part of replacing still yet So we're talking about this mercy that would come and this righteousness and filling up with those two things, a heart to do right and a heart to love mercy so that God's blessing can come to others. Along with this filling up, we see this word purity come in. God blesses those who are pure in heart, Jesus says. For they'll see God. Now this, this means that you have an undivided loyalty and you desire your inward nature to correspond with your outward profession. You want to be pure. You don't want to just do the right thing so you be blessed, but out of a relationship to God because he loves you so much, you, you, you want to honor him with your life and you believe in him so much, you want purity to flow. I like the thought that holiness is happiness. And when we have this heart to be pure, he shows up in a special way. Now, I, I want to offer you a thought. <clears throat> and I think you've already seen it in the lives of others. I believe if you keep yourself pure that God will use you in a greater way as an instrument to do his will. I believe the Bible proves that over and over again. We know people who, you know, we've watched them say one thing as preachers on TV and then do another thing and who respects that? And, and where does that witness get to keep going? It's usually diminished, it goes down, and it's lost in influence for Christ. That's not only true for them, it's true for me and it's true for all of us. Every one of us to some degree with the people we come in contact with. 2 Timothy 2.21, if you keep yourself pure, you'll be a utensil God can use for his purpose. If it's true in straight ahead drive, then it's true in reverse too. If you're not pure, you will not be used very much as an instrument or utensil for him. This heart for purity. When, when Jesus says, for they will see God, I think he's talking about an anointing that comes, a greater flow of his spirit through our lives that comes with this. So we desire it from our hearts. 
It goes on to say, your life will be clean and you'll be ready for your master, for the master to use you for every good work. There's something about purity. When we fill up with that righteousness, love, and purity, the character of God, it's more easily for God to flow through our lives. There are four things that we emphasize as environments here that we think we see as New Testament principles. These are the four things that we see that if people will do on a regular basis, I'm, I'm about to tell you how to fill up with God. The first is church. You're doing pretty well there, right? Because you're here today. This morning in first service, we had a good crowd there too, and I said to the Lord, Lord, thank you that they're coming. It's just so cool. You're only here because you want to know more about Jesus. You want to become more like God. That is admirable. Not all of your friends understand that. I just want to encourage you that the Bible says in Hebrews that they should not forsake the assembling of the saints together. God, we see it in the New Testament in Acts, they met in the temple courtyards every day and that was a big group meeting and on a regular basis, we say here weekly, at least you need to meet in a church somewhere so you can receive preaching, teaching, worship and encouragement in your faith. That is an atmosphere where more of God will come to you as you receive um, what, what is being shared from the truth of his word. But So that's one environment. The other environment we think that will really help you grow is a small group environment. Life groups will gather all this week. Uh, over about uh, 20 cities, people will gather and life groups will be going over some material that we have brought into the lesson plan for those home groups where you can learn more about what we're talking about today and discuss it. But in those life groups, what happened? You start to love one another, pray for one another, interact in life in other places. Not only did they meet in the temple courtyards to listen to the apostles teach in the New Testament, but they, went, they met house to house. And there's a smaller group connection that you very much need. You need to be connected with other believers. And so we say you need to be involved in a small group. It doesn't have to be a life group. It can be others as well. But it needs to be a, a, a more personal connection around the word of God that you have so you can discuss and pray for one another. And then there's the kitchen environment that we, we, uh, we emphasize personal devotions here prayer and the reading of God's word. We just went through a series to emphasize those things and, and it's been so encouraging to hear the reports about that. But you know, um, you can grow in your personal devotions uh, and, and grow in the Lord not only by reading and prayer but by joining where there's other teachings. Like the shepherding groups have amazing teachers that go through there on Sunday mornings and Horizon University, they, they, those are places that are, that are growth places as well and that will help you in a personal devotion. And we're, we're saying that, you know, church, the small group, and your, your, your personal growth life, those, those are important to listen and interact with teaching. And then the last one that we think, these four areas that we think we see as scriptural principles, you, you should be serving somewhere. Just blessing other people. One of the ways you keep self from rising to the top, because it's always a temptation, is to bless others and reach out to others. And when you're blessing others, you get fulfilled in life and self doesn't jump up as much and it's God's will to flow through you to bless others. Now, these are environments that we think will help you fill up with Jesus. I wanna read a a letter, it's an email actually, that a young lady wrote me. She asked me to keep it anonymous, so I will this morning. She knew I might read it and she was was right, I wanted to. She's given me permission. But I want you to notice some of these environments in, in, in part of her journey to Jesus that I'm talking about this morning. She started off by talking about her athletic performance and how she wasn't hitting the marks that she wanted to hit. And I'll pick up her letter here. She said, so I decided to eat less. 
Then I would weigh less, so I thought that would mean I would have less weight to move around while doing sports. But it got worse. I would first not eat the hot lunches I usually get at school. Then that moved to no dinner too. My weight was down and down more every day. Then I would run for miles outside. Not just the usual one to three miles, but more like four to six miles of running nonstop. I would do that every time I would eat. Then I started to record my weight, what I ate, and watching everything I eat, and calorie intake, and I got down to only eating about 450 to 550 calories a day. That's less than a gymnast training for the Olympics. And my weight dropped more. The anorexia, she called it what it was, was quickly eating away at me. I would go to friends' houses for dinner and eat all of my food and even eat some junk food, but I would come home and exercise too much and then not eat for a while. I had no idea it was pulling me away from Christ more and more. Then I started going to church. I tried to lay off starvation a little bit, but I couldn't. I would pray every day, but then one day, out of nowhere, I felt Jesus come into my life. He took away the pain, the regret, the anorexia. I had lost more than 20% of my regular body weight. And now that's all behind me. Jesus saved me and I thank him every day by writing in my horizon journal and praying. I've slowly but surely gone back to my regular weight and I'm so happy while going out to eat and not worrying about anything weight related. And I'm gonna throw this in here because it talks about one of the environments. I also need to thank you. She's talking to me. Because when you preach at church, you would change my life and my view of God. You opened my eyes to Jesus and he opened my eyes to a better way of life and I thank you for that. See what happens when people start to fill themselves, replace the thing that they think would make them happy and fill it with Jesus. Going to the places where you can find Jesus more and more. Psalm 107 verse nine says, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. So what do we fill up with? We empty of self, we fill up with these things, the love and the mercy of God. A heart to live right and to be holy. A heart to be pure so he can flow through our lives and so others can see Jesus in us. Fill up. And then Jesus said this, Blessed are those who work for peace. And that's why I'm gonna call this third point, pour out. Notice the word work in there. I'm talking about pouring out your life as an offering. This may not seem like a prescription from happiness, for happiness, but Jesus said it is. Amazing joy comes when you're not living for yourself, when you fill up and look like God with his love, compassion, and righteousness, his truth. And then he says, I want to pour through your life to show others who I am. God blesses those who work for peace for they will be called the children of God. Now I want to suggest to you that the best peacemaking effort you could ever make, the best peacemaking activity that you can engage in is introducing people to the Prince of Peace. Introducing people to Jesus Christ. You want peace for them, there's nothing, you, your words won't do it. 
your affection and compassion. People might see Jesus through that, but if Jesus isn't attached to it and it's just your affection, it's not enough to bring peace to their lives. I say it over and over again, it seems so trite, but the answer to whatever your problem is, is Jesus Christ. That's why we should bring Jesus Christ to people. He's the counselor. He's the prince of peace. He's the mighty king. He's the one with all wisdom and all the answers. He's the one that that can bring love to your heart and cause you to settle down. He's the one that can take away your worry and give you a future and a hope and cause you to know how you're loved by him. They have to have Jesus. So if we want to be peacemakers, our best effort for making peace is introducing them to the prince of peace. A peacemaker is one who reconciles others first to God and then to other people. Starts with Jesus. We give our lives to see others come to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this. We are Christ's ambassadors. Now I, I just have a thought for you. Really? Really? Are you this? Let's, let's evaluate our lives. Do, are we willing to give our whole lives for this purpose that brings happiness? If you want to be happy, part of it is letting him flow through you so something eternal can happen. There's no fulfillment beyond that. Eternal life being affected because we're partnering with Jesus Christ. We are Christ's ambassadors and God is using us to speak to you. We urge you as though Christ himself were pleading with you. Be reconciled to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. There's a sacrifice here. This peacemaker works at it, as it says in verse nine. And then he kind of adds to this thought of pouring out your life. God blesses those, in verse 10, who are persecuted because they live for God. Is your life I'm going to point that preacher finger at everybody here today. Is your life being lived for God as its primary function? Is it about God helping you or is it about you living for God? I think for most of us, we'd have to say there are times I don't even have living for God in focus. I just want help from God. But he says, if you want to be happy, live for me. Live for me with your whole life. Fill up with me and let me flow through you and you'll find fulfillment like you've never seen before. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus said, I've come in John 10.10 to give you the full life, the abundant life. The Bible says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's part of the prayer of, that we should pray. Jesus gave us that prayer. So when we live for him, in this amazing and real way, he comes down to meet us and fulfill us and bless us in this life. But it's even way bigger than that. It's about eternal life. That we know that we're living for something beyond ourselves. Hey, fill up your retirement account. You die, someone else gets it. You live for God and that's treasure laid up in heaven that goes forever and ever. That's people who will know Jesus and live forever and ever and ever in his presence in heaven. Pour it all out to God, for God. Give your whole life. That's part of the remedy for happiness.
2 Timothy 3.12 talks about persecution. And when he says pour out, when he says give your life, he puts persecution in the sentence. He doesn't say you might be persecuted. Look what it says in the Bible in 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I know Christians do dumb things sometimes. I know there's no love in somebody standing on a cafeteria table and shouting turn or burn. And I know people can have the wrong motives. But I also know that if you're living for Jesus Christ and you are his ambassador, as it said in 2 Corinthians 5, that the words of the truth of Jesus Christ will come out of your mouth in public settings where people don't know it. The Bible says in Romans, how will they know unless someone tells them? That's us. We're the ambassadors. And here's what it says. Everyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So here's a question for us. Are we being persecuted? If not, we're probably not saying much anywhere where his witness could be pouring through our lives and our mouths. Being rejected, slandered, persecuted is as much a part of a normal mark of Christian discipleship as being pure in heart and merciful. Did you know the Bible says to give a cup of water in Jesus' name? Jesus' name. I'm not for just giving cups of water and not attaching the name of Jesus to it. Because I'll tell you what will happen. If we give a cup of water without not mentioning the name of Jesus, that means meeting the needs of even the poor, then guess who's going to get the credit for giving the water? You. Me. But when we say, Jesus sent me to give you this, I remember somebody saying to me once, some of you have heard the story. I, I was playing on a basketball team in Dallas High School. By the way, pray for Dallas High School. They had a wrestler die in a match there this week, one of the students. But I, I remember <clears throat> um, I was a junior in high school and probably one of the best players on the team at, 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 at the time. And, but I was slipping all over the place because I didn't have good tennis shoes, basketball shoes, I should say. My dad watched in a practice, but here's the deal. He was a poor preacher and he didn't have the money and I wasn't even gonna ask. But I couldn't perform well because I, I couldn't get traction, silly as that sounds. So I remember he came home one time. He said, you need new shoes, don't you? I said, yeah, I do. But I know you can't afford it, Dad. That's cool. And he said, well, let's, let's pray. So we, he bowed his head and said, God, Stan needs some basketball shoes and you love him. Would you, would you just show him that you, that you hear him, that you see him, and would you, would you give him $40? He asked me how much. That, that's like 150 today. Would you give him $40 to get a good pair of shoes? God is my witness. He got done with that prayer and a few minutes later, someone knocked on our door, said, Pastor, I was just driving by. I don't get it, but I felt like the Lord told me to bring you $40. That is one of the moments that I mark in my life to show that God knows where I am. He didn't bring it in his name. His name was Darwin Horton. 
He said, God told me to bring this. And guess who I gave the glory to for that? I thought, if God cares if I have shoes, I think I like him. He knows where I'm at. And when we give in Jesus' name, now attached to that name will come some persecution. But unless we attach the name, their hearts aren't torn, turned towards him. Why, why will we be persecuted? Because the response of humanity to Jesus Christ is either repentance and faith or rejection and persecution. If the words don't come, there's no chance for repentance and faith. The words have to be spoken. But not everybody will have that response, even though those words must be spoken. There will be people who reject it and then persecute you. Speak in love with the name of Jesus. Because persecution is part, I, I don't get it completely, but I believe it. It's part of the quotient of happiness. Seems like it would push happiness away if you're persecuted, doesn't it? But I'll tell you, the people that empty themselves of their own selfish desires, people that fill up with the love and truth of God, and people that give their lives away are the happiest people, to Jesus Christ, the happiest people I've ever met in my life. Doesn't look like it adds up, but experience shows me those are the happiest people I've ever met. I want to introduce you to someone you've heard about her already. Her name is Nancy Davis. The picture that's on the screen is of this missionary. Ten days ago or so on February, or I'm sorry, January 26, she was killed. Shot in the head while fleeing from a suspected drug cartel gunman in Mexico. Her husband raced to the border to try to get help in their pickup, but it was, it was too late. She was gone. Her and her husband, Sam, regularly received threats and were forced to flee danger in Mexico time and time again. And they kept going back. Why? Because people need Jesus. Jesus. Because there are poor people who needed medical help. Friends and family said the Davises were pursuing their passion, planting churches and spreading the gospel in Mexico. They had done this for 40 years. She loved to compose music. She was also a registered nurse. Always there to help the sick. Her niece said she was a phenomenal woman and every patient she ever had, she talked about God and dealt with their soul. She didn't just help them, she helped them in Jesus' name. Due to the escalating drug violence, you've all heard about it, I'm sure, in Mexico, Nancy Davis said the week before she left that she might not make it out of the country alive this time. She knew the risk. Well, we know she didn't make it out. One agency reported that the Davises had performed a funeral service, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> a funeral service for three people who were rivals of the drug lords, and they said the attack was revenge. Another news agency said the cartel wanted their truck. <clears throat> Whatever the motive, the one thing we know for sure is this. 
It was dangerous and Nancy and her husband were committed to sharing the good news of Jesus even if it meant their death. And we honor her today. We're inspired by her today and her example. Her husband said on one news broadcast that I saw that he was happy for two things. First, that when she was shot in the back of the head, she was unconscious immediately and she never felt pain. And secondly, just really comforted him to know that she had received her reward. She was now with Jesus. And there'd be no more pain, no more crying, no more tears, and a lot of treasure. And heaven was waiting for her. Her son Joseph said this, time after time, what made her the happiest was seeing somebody hit their knees and come up forgiven for whatever they've done. Murder, rape, the smallest sin, he said. She'd come home so happy, she'd say, well, we stole another one from the devil today. How cool. Do you know what brings fulfillment and happiness? Knowing your life counts. It's counting for something. Happiest people I've ever seen are people who live their lives this way. We may lose everything on this earth, but we will inherit everything in heaven. Jesus said, be happy because your reward in heaven is going to be great when you're persecuted. Nancy has a reward. And as we stand for Christ in this world, we can be assured that we too one day will have our reward. I want to close with this scripture. The thought of pouring out your life. Paul is speaking. He's near the end of his life. And here's what he says. As for me, my life has already been poured out. Poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race and I've remained faithful. Boy, don't you want to say that? I want to say that when the time comes. I fought a good fight. I finished the race. I've remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that great day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his glorious return. <clears throat> 